0: California has a water shortage. The Russian government spends billions on the Sochi Winter Olympics, and we tell you where the name for our podcast comes from. You're listening to Upset Patterns. This installment of Upset Patterns, we pack in three smaller topics submitted to us by listeners. Here to join the discussion is someone who asks a lot of questions. Paige Atkinson. Hi Will. So why don't you reach into that vast mailbag of user of listener-submitted questions? What's, what's the first one you pull out?
1: Sydney Morgan writes in: California is facing droughts. How can we ensure everyone has access to water without having a shortage?
0: It's an interesting question. I think a lot of people don't want to leave water up to the markets because everyone needs water to survive, sort of thought as this natural good. And intuitively, if we leave it only up to the people who can afford it, then maybe a billionaire will spend all his money uh, watering his golf course, and that's no good. Just to give a little background, most of the state has been deemed in an exceptional drought so far in 2014, the first few months. And it seems that these droughts go in and out. It's not entirely rare. California has a 45 billion dollar agricultural industry and obviously that's gonna be dramatically affected by a drought or an increase in the price of water or scarcity of it. Now when it comes to utilities or something like water people, you can divide into three different scenarios. It can be controlled by the government, controlled totally privately or a regulated monopoly and honestly in my opinion if you look across the spectrum across countries, across different industries it's difficult to tell what is the ideal, ideal scheme, public, private, or regulated monopoly. So many countries with, or, or municipalities with totally public controlled water have bad pipe infrastructure and low incentives to actually deliver water. And you can think the government is a monopoly in itself. And although we might think in our head that it can control ideal prices and distribute it in an in a just way, If they don't have an incentive to maintain the infrastructure, a lot of times that infrastructure will degrade. One thing to keep in mind is that in California, 80 to 85% of water is used for agricultural purposes. So that means that 15 to 20 is left up for the consumer or even businesses, restaurants. Now, a single walnut takes five gallons of water to produce. That seems like a ton of water, and it is. And the reason why walnut farmers can basically support themselves is because they get massive subsidies from the federal and state governments. And if our listeners remember back to our corn subsidies episode, what these subsidies can mean is that farmers are incentivized to produce crops that otherwise wouldn't be efficient to produce. And so the, quote, thirstier crops are are being grown and getting a lot more water because When you're given these water subsidies, it's going to be cheaper. And that means that this 80 to 85% of water used for agricultural purposes, it's not necessarily an efficient use of it.
1: It also sounds like the water usage isn't only affecting California residents, but also everyone who buys walnuts, for instance. They they have the supply, or they have the demand for whatever agriculture they're producing? Correct. And that's
0: why it's so hard to take away the subsidy, because if these goods are cheap, water is just one input of many in agriculture. And so if we were to let these prices adjust freely and go up due to a scarcity, then the prices for all this agriculture would go up. That's true. Um, but if you think of the energy crisis in the late 70s, when there was a shortage of gas, it didn't mean that everyone, you know, when you when we fixed the price of gas, that so suddenly everyone gets it, it means that you have lines around the parking lot, or around the gas station. To reference another episode, the parking episode, when prices aren't allowed to go up as much as they need to, that's why we have a shortage. And I actually, I tweeted at and emailed a few economists because I thought, this seems too easy, the solution to raise the price, but, you know, is there some good literature or research on water shortages? And really all of them, from different sides of the spectrum, said raise the price. And what raising the price would do on the agricultural side is that businesses would maybe adopt or innovate practices that are more considerate of water usage.
1: So not only raise the price of water, but also regulate the use of water.
0: And that that could be a sister policy. So let the price freely rise to reflect the shortage, and then... I know a lot of states and cities will have water bans on certain days or you know you can only water your lawn this much and those can be very effective but really California has been doing those those mandates where you say you can only use so much water uh, in certain situations but when 80 to 85% of the water is used for agriculture what the residents or businesses do in that 15 to 20% isn't going to necessarily make water suddenly available. So I think the general takeaway from the California case is that you need to get rid of these subsidies so businesses can be incentivized to grow crops that don't need as much water. You know, the price of water should reflect its true cost. And then to let the price for the rest of the market adjust accordingly.
1: So water is rare and will now be expensive for those who need to use it.
0: It's possible. And actually, one economist that I talked to said it could be that California is overpopulated. If they can't su- supply enough fresh water to their residents, then without these subsidies or without a you know, sustainable um, mechanism and allocation of water, then it could be that some of them need to move out. And I don't know, I, I thought that was an interesting point
1: there's a lot more demand...
0: ...than, than supply, right. than availability.
1: Well, our next writer is Dan from Oyster Bay, and he writes in, Is hosting the Olympics good for a city or country's economy?
0: That is an excellent question. And a lot of times when the bidding for an Olympic Games comes around, the mayor of a city or the president, prime minister of country, wants to rally the troops, so to speak, and Bring in a full force and say this is going to do great things for our country in terms of tourism. We're going to rebuild our infrastructure, but the evidence is kind of mixed, and it depends on where the host city starts to begin with. Montreal hosting the Olympics in 1976 was left with a one and a half billion dollar debt, and they actually made the payment last. They made their last payment in 2006. Now, L.A. Is the, in 1984 is the case that a lot of people like to bring up as a positive case. They made a slight profit, but if you think of an American city like Los Angeles, they already have a lot of hotels, transportation, roads, and venues that's necessary for an Olympic Games. So they don't need to build anything in the lead-up to the Games, and then afterwards, they don't have a lot of venues lying around that they might not use. And this is interesting because a lot of people want poor cities or countries to host the Olympics. They think it'll be a good source of revenue for tourism and build up all that infrastructure, etc. But a lot of these poor cities, they don't have a lot of the infrastructure, and it could be very likely that they report a loss when all is said and done.
1: Because it takes a lot of money to build the hotels for the amount of tourists that want to attend the Olympics.
0: And so one really bad example is... Uh, an estimate one estimate says that the Greeks lost about fifteen billion dollars from Athens in two thousand and four, and one one economist even suggests that it could have really been the trigger for the recent debt crisis. It was just this straw that broke the camels back and in the case of Greece they didn 't have a lot of the stadiums um, necessary you know you need a huge one for the opening ceremonies, you need somewhere to put all the athletes and I guess now, even 10 years later, those venues are dilapidated and they're not being used. Because if these cities sort of had a use for the venues, they probably would have built them beforehand. And how many times do you need a 90,000-person stadium except for the Olympics?
1: Right. I uh, actually visited an Olympic venue in Barcelona that is not as big as a tourist site as you may think. It's basically a waste of space, and they have a venue for all of their soccer games not too far away. It it seems like they have two giant spaces right now.
0: Yeah, and and Sydney, um, which reported breaking even, but an independent auditor found that the long-term costs are so far to be about $2.2 billion extra, and a part of that is $30 million a year just to maintain Olympic Stadium, which was the stadium built for the opening ceremonies and parts of the game. So kind of like in Barcelona, you have these stadiums that are just lying around. And it's not like you build them and that's the only cost. You have to maintain them, security, make sure it doesn't crumble to the ground. And if you do need events, then you got to run electricity and plumbing through it. Huge costs.
1: So the most recent Olympic Games, how, did, how would you say that turned out?
0: In the case of Sochi, I think it's hard to make a total bottom-line estimate right now because it just happened. And a lot of times when people, the, the supporters of the Olympics want to emphasize the advantages of these games, the, it's the indirect effects that they talk about. So the tourism, you basically have 17 days where your city is being watched by, I don't know, a third of the world. And you think there could be long-term effects where that happens. And because we're only a few months, or a month, after Sochi, um, those those revenues can't really be measured. What is known is that the cost of Sochi was the most one of the most expensive Winter Olympics yet. And on one end, you could say that the greatest revenue for Russia from it is actually, it was a big stage for Putin. And that's something we can't really put dollars on, and they'll probably deem it as su- success no matter what. But going back to that tourism question, in these 17 days where you're in the spotlight, there can be good PR, like London had a pretty good image displayed about it um, during their Olympics, but there can also be really bad PR. So Munich in 1972, security was an issue. The pollution in China, uh, in Beijing, that was bad PR, and then corruption in the Nagano Games. So it's not always the case that putting your city on the spotlight, really will show it in a good sense.:
1: Yeah, I know for Sochi, their PR was definitely mixed in that some of their infrastructure was not finished by the time the Olympic games came around.
0: And of course, the really bizarre things, I know BuzzFeed was full of them of you know, putting the stray dogs down or these athlete villages that like barely had working toilets. it was you know, it was not good. But going back to Barcelona, Barcelona is actually, there's some estimates that suggest Barcelona benefit greatly from the increase in tourism. So the 92 games, they slightly broke even, or, or maybe a slight loss, and then afterward, I guess their tourism has gone up by a lot. So there is the case that, there is the chance that tourism can go up and your city benefits.
1: I wasn't even born when the Barcelona Olympics occurred, but I was a tourist eventually, so I can speak for that, definitely.
0: Now, one factor to to think about is you are going to get a lot of uh, tourists during the 17 days, but what that doesn't take into account is the people who leave town. So Beijing cost about $40 billion dollars for their, all of their operating operations, and they actually saw a drop in hotel bookings during the Olympic summer. And you, you can sort of infer that the locals get, get out of town. You know, in Austin during South by Southwest or Austin City, the Austin City Limits Festival, people leave town. And so although all the, there's this flood of people coming in and spending money, it doesn't account for the people that leave town at the same time.
1: Yeah, so it's basically bodies replacing bodies that have left.
0: And it's not a net gain, as a lot of people might assume.
1: Yeah, I would assume that their hotels were totally booked and that everyone stayed to watch.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I remember hearing stories about that, but I guess the, the official estimates are that overall invasion, the hotel bookings went down. So, of course, when you have indirect benefits like tourism or reputation, things like that it can be hard to measure those in the long run. Alan Sanderson at the University of Chicago did one comparison where he looked at Olympic cities and what he called twin cities. So for example, he compared Atlanta in 1996 to Charlotte over the same time period. Um, And then he also compared Madrid and Barcelona during during Barcelona's games and Melbourne versus, versus Sydney. And what he found was that there was no significant increase in tourism, construction, or tax revenue in any of those Olympic host cities, so in the case of Barcelona, they've got an increase in tourism since the 92 games, but it's also strongly correlated to an increase in tourism in the rest of Spain, so it's hard to really say that the Olympics were the cause of this increase in tourism.
1: Yeah, the stereotype is that every Olympic Games brings a lot of money and a lot of tourists, so that's not exactly the case.
0: I think it's hard to tell, and some cities do make a profit, but it's defi- it's not even an inexpensive process to bid. One report says that Chicago spent over $100 million just on the bid. That's a massive amount, and I'll, I'll tell you, Chicago and Cook County are broke. They cannot afford that, and you think, is it really worth it? And, I- and I'm and i not sure. And it'll be interesting to see in the future cities, um, or even the World Cup, um, which is sort of... A similar scenario, um, how the countries fare.
1: Yeah, especially for countries that are underdeveloped, like you said.
0: And Brazil has the next World Cup and the next Olympics, so they could be in for a real treat or a real nightmare.
1: Well, on to this interesting question, which I have been wondering about. Um, Miss Nesbitt asked, where does the name Upset Patterns come from? Uh,
0: Mrs. Nesbitt, one of our more loyal listeners. The name Upset Patterns comes from a quote by the political philosopher Robert Nozick. And I'll try to make this story as brief as possible, but it is one of my favorite topics, so I might go on a little bit. So in the early 70s, political philosopher John Rawls wrote this book called A Theory of Justice. And what it one of its main implications was in deciding who gets what, what do people deserve. And through a series of axioms and premises, he came up with the difference principle, which is that we should design society to be where to maximize the position of the worst off. Then, a few years later, his Harvard colleague Robert Nozick wrote Anarchy, State, and Utopia. And among other things, he this book was a slight response to Rawls. So, among other things, he had this scenario called the, the Will Chamberlain example. Will Chamberlain had just signed, I think, the biggest sports contract. For basketball um, ever in America. So it was, it was relevant at the time. So in this Will Chamberlain example, let's, let's say that we start with your favorite distribution of wealth, whatever it is. Now in that example, everyone has the capability to spend their money as they wish, which is not in itself uh, an uncontentious idea, but they do in this scenario. Now let's say Will Chamberlain wants to charge people to play basketball and people want to see him. So he charges $0.10 admission and 20,000 people go and watch him play basketball. Wilt Chamberlain's better off because he voluntarily played basketball, voluntarily played basketball. The 20,000 fans are better off because they thought watching him play is more enjoyable than having $0.10. And it's hard to say that the people outside the stadium are worse off because they're left unaffected. However, after this, Wilt is richer and all the people in the stadium are poor. So now the wealth distribution is unjust. And what how Nozick summed this up was that liberty upsets patterns. In a sense, and I've always found it interesting because, you know, Nozick's example is not an airtight argument. I think it's contentious that people have these rights that he talked about. But... I always thought it was interesting, this idea that when you let people move freely or decide what to do with their own property, that you're not always going to like the outcome of it. And if you look at some of our past episodes, like prostitution, you know we don't like the idea necessarily that there's demand for it, but it doesn't mean that the, the demand goes away or that the market doesn't exist. And so I think it, it, it's obviously a topic for political philosophy, but I think it's important for economics because... In economics, you have a scarce resource, whether you want to or not, and you need to decide how to allocate it.
1: It's very interesting. I did not know that was where it came from, but it makes a lot of sense when you have the freedom to do what you want with your money. Sometimes there's inequalities and confusion, which with no economic background especially, can be very, very disturbing. (laughs) Right,
0: and you know, in this instance, this is a case of political philosophy, so economics doesn't necessarily have the answers for what a, the ideal distribution of wealth is. Um, and I don't think that economists who claim that are necessarily correct, but, but yeah, but still, I, I just like this idea that when individuals sort of freely do what they want, the order that emerges out of it isn't what we think is ideal or just, but out of it comes this spontaneous order.
1: Upset patterns.
0: This episode of Upset Patterns was hosted by Will Comfernell and Paige Atkinson at the Library at the University of Texas in Austin. Want more links related to today's episode? Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com/upsetpatterns.